0: Uh, I hope you understand uh, that that's the, uh, the new cadence uh, here. That's going to be the new cadence. Um, and it's not just our efforts to avoid dead, dead time, uh, you know, over the, over the video or over the, the mic. It's an opportunity. I, 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 I don't know if I can fully express to you how much that is my prayer all throughout the week as I'm opening the book in anticipation of having the privilege of teaching God's Word to you. I've shared with you before that I often pray, Lord, I'm willing to forget everything I think I know. If only you'll teach me by your Spirit. Because I take this responsibility that I have on a Sunday morning very, very seriously, but one of the things that that I can't control, that Brian can't control, that the elders can't control when they come up here to teach is where your heart is as we get into God's Word. We front load everything with worship. We, we spend time in God's presence. As Brian said, we talk to Him about Him. We talk to Him. We talk to each other about Him. We recommend God as we go. And that sets the tone for our hearts as we come to God's Word. And uh, I, I'm glad that you, you, know, you have an opportunity to greet one another, and that's all part of the process But when the moment comes that we're about to bring the book or open the book together, that's a moment for you to be settling back in and asking God to just work in your heart. Open my eyes. I want to see Jesus. So uh, that's what we'll be doing on Sundays. If you see somebody around you that seems to be new, you might explain to them that that's what this moment is about and uh, Brian won't, or, or Curtis or whoever leads it, won't, uh, won't every week be saying that, you know, giving you the introduction. Uh, whoever's speaking will make their way up during that prayer time. So please make it a prayer that God would just speak to you. This morning, we'll be continuing our studies in Paul's first letter to Timothy in a series entitled, Be Strong in Grace. This is part 45, and entitled, Called to a Holy Life, and we'll be unpacking 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Last Sunday, we unpacked verses 6 to 8 of 2 Timothy chapter 1, and we looked at that passage through the lens of the story of Elijah in the days after God used him to defeat the prophets of Baal and turn the nation of Israel back to Yahweh, the one true God. In other words, God used Elijah to do something that was absolutely amazing. And in the process of that, Elijah ordered the execution of the 450 prophets of of the false god God Baal. And it's important to remember at this point that God has just proven himself magnificently there on Mount Carmel in that incredible contest. But despite that, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel remained committed to the false god Baal. Jezebel was ticked. That Elijah, by God's grace, had not only defeated the prophets of Baal, but had condemned them to death. And I want us to understand that there was no pushback from God when Elijah called and oversaw, called for and oversaw that execution. So, what do we have so far? Well, the nation of Israel was on the fast track to God's judgment because they were moving away from God as quickly as their legs would carry them. But God used Elijah to turn Israel completely around so that they were once again moving in the right direction, the direction that leads toward God. But the king and queen of Israel don't believe in Yahweh, the one true God, despite the fact that God had so powerfully worked uh, and, and proven that he alone deserves their belief, their worship, and their obedience. So the queen, who had already killed many of the prophets of Yahweh, tells Elijah that he's next. And Elijah is terrified by her threat and decides to go on the lamb, get out of Dodge, head for the hills, however you feel like you need to say it. And in a state of deep depression, he leaves on a journey that will ultimately take him more than seven weeks. And at the end of that journey, he'll find himself in a cave on the side of Mount Sinai, the very mountain where God had given his law to Israel through Moses. And as Elijah was there in the cave, God spoke to him and asked for him, for the second time, what he was doing there in that cave. And Elijah explained that he'd been working really hard for God. You remember that story that he gives? Working really hard for God despite the fact that the people of Israel had failed to keep God's covenant. They had torn down his altars and, and they had killed his, his prophets with the sword. And now, according to Elijah, let's just he continues, he says, and, and, uh, and now they're trying to kill me. I'm the only one left. I'm the only prophet that's left, and and now they're trying to kill me. So Elijah thought that it would be better if God himself were to kill him just right out here in the wilderness rather than turning him loose to Israel where Jezebel would be free to do what she had promised to do to him. And in response to all of that, God does something remarkable while Elijah is there in the cave. He sends a wind so powerful that it tears rocks right out of the face of the mountain. And, and sends them tumbling down the side where they they crumble to pieces. He follows that up with an earthquake that shakes the mountain to the core, and and then he sends a fire that burns with such intense heat that it scorches the area all around the mouth of that cave. But you may recall from the story last week that God was not in the wind. He was not in the earthquake. He was not in the fire, which is a remarkable statement when you think about it because God clearly caused the, the, the fire, he, he sent the wind, he caused the earthquake, he, he sent the fire, and I think what those, uh, that phrase means when he says that he was not in any of those things is that God made and sent those extremely powerful things, but he didn't speak through the wind, the earthquake, or the fire. God chose in te- instead to speak through a gentle whisper as he reached out to his weary this weary, frightened man whose heart had been broken. It's as though the wind, the earthquake, and the fire were punctuation, exclamation points, if you will, that preceded and provided a context for what God planned to say to Elijah in that gentle whisper. In other words, God allowed Elijah to experience and tap into God's immense power, and then with that foundation in place, he took the time to have a quiet conversation with Elijah about Elijah's fear that Jezebel would have her way in her plan to kill Elijah. In other words, God didn't promise Elijah that nothing bad would happen to him. God just helped Elijah to gain the proper perspective on the chances of Jezebel killing him. You see, to God, Elijah wasn't a statistic or a percentage point. Elijah was the servant of Yahweh, the one true God. And that meant that nothing was going to happen to Elijah that was outside of God's plan for Elijah's life. I mean, think about it. The day may come when I'm diagnosed as having cancer and uh, I can knock on wood that that won't happen, but it could. Now, we all know that when we're worried or fearful about something, we can always turn to the comfort that comes from Google as we click there for information. So I might go to WebMD or some other reliable medical website and and look up the thing that the doctor said I have and what was it that he called it? I, I think it was something like, Super scary, big bad Noma. I don't really remember what he called it. I just know there was a Noma on the end of it. And, 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 uh, but, but I know that my wife, if I ever go through that, is going to be right there in the room with me, and she'll be listening to the doctor and remembering. She'll remember what I have. And so once I figure out how to spell it, I, I, can, I can start clicking. As I do my research on Google, I discover that people that have what I have have a 7% chance of recovering but 93% will be dead in three months. And I can imagine slumping back into my chair at that point and saying, hmm, that's not as encouraging as I thought it would be. Listen to me. I will never be encouraged again if I'm only a statistic or a percentage point. Never. But if I take the time to remind myself that I am a child of the one true king, then I can know for sure that even cancer has no power over me that God himself has not ordained. Now listen, does that mean that I have a guarantee that I won't be dead in three months? No, doesn't mean that at all. But it does mean that whatever the next three months hold, I won't have to do it alone. I have nothing to worry about because like the words of that old song, I know not what the future holds. But I know who holds the future. The God of the wind, the God of the earthquake, the God of the fire is the one who holds my future. And he's more powerful than any statistic or percentage point. So what chance did Jezebel have have of killing Elijah if God hadn't planned that his servant Elijah would be killed by Jezebel? Well, it's difficult to calculate exactly, but I can tell you that her chances were zero, zip, bupkis, not a nil, nix, nothing, and none. Just as true as that. Jezebel the queen could never do something to Elijah that God had not planned. That was impossible for her. But despite that, Elijah spent weeks worrying about what Jezebel might do instead of spending weeks trusting that God was more powerful than Jezebel. And I have to say that I get it. I've been afraid and I've been unnerved. I'm unnerved every time I come up here on a Sunday morning. But I'm able to take comfort from the fact and and courage from the fact that I believe that God is able to use me to communicate His truth to you. That's why I keep showing up on Sunday mornings instead of just retreating to my desk because I love the study. I love the quiet. I love the study. I love the sleuth. It's getting up here on Sunday mornings and doing the teaching, the out loud part that I don't like. At the same time, one of the reasons that I love the story of Elijah is because God, God doesn't take even a moment to reassure Elijah that Jezebel won't get him. <laughs> I love that about God. He, he, he doesn't take away the tangible fear. He just presents his intangible power to Elijah. In other words, God doesn't tell Elijah his plan, and he doesn't share his purpose with Elijah, but he sure does display his power to Elijah. And in God's mind, that was enough. That was enough for God to be able to send Elijah right back into the fight, right back to his ministry to those people who didn't want to hear what he had to say. Elijah had focused on Jezebel's power and seen only danger and vulnerability, but when, God, when Elijah experienced God's power, his danger and vul- vulnerability became sweet, safety, and security as Elijah chose to set aside his worries and pick up God's word instead. And that aligns perfectly with what Paul said to Timothy last week. For the spirit that God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power. Love and self-discipline. Timothy was facing opposition to his ministry and his message, and like Elijah, he'd grown weary of it, and based on what Paul says to him, it seems that he had grown timid and may well have been having difficulty loving the ones to whom he was ministering, especially when he had to fight so hard just to tell them the truth. As we also pointed out last week, Timothy may have been lacking the love the self-discipline that he needed, the self-discipline that's required to share the good news with others, especially when you've made it, they've made it clear to you that they don't want to hear this truth that you're presenting to them. And I love it that Paul doesn't make promises to Timothy that the false teachers won't get to him. He doesn't make promises to Timothy that, that he won't end up in prison like Paul had. Paul just reminds Timothy of the power of God and how trustworthy God is. And in light of God's power, Paul tells Timothy to fan back to flame the gift of God that was within him. Paul doesn't tell Timothy to muster up his courage. Instead, he tells Timothy to tap back into the power, the love, and the self discipline that comes from the Spirit of God. Reconnect, Timothy. And again, that didn't mean that Timothy wouldn't suffer harm at the hands of the false teachers. But it did mean that Timothy's life, his ministry, his message were in God's very capable hands. And that meant that Timothy could move with real confidence and passion as he did the thing that God designed him to do. And I hope that over the past week you've taken the time to remind yourself of these same truths as you have fanned back into flame the gift of God that's been given to you so that you can serve in the way that God designed you to serve regardless of the discouragements that are out there. And as you consider how you should serve, never forget that the truest mark, the most solid evidence of the Spirit's work, the Spirit's power at work in your life, is how willingly and readily you share the gospel, the good news about Jesus with others. So what does that mean? It means that if you want to experience the Spirit's power, and I I talk to people all the time, I want the power, you know, I'd love to be able to heal people. Yeah, okay, well, that's cool. But if you want to experience the power of the Spirit of God at work in your life, all you have to do is start telling other people the good news that Jesus has already been punished for their sin and has already died in their place. And when they believe that message and they're saved, you'll have the privilege of knowing that God worked powerfully through you as you shared the gospel with them. Speaking of being saved, it's time to move on and unpack the passage for this morning. And as always... We'll get started by standing and reading the passage together. So let's stand and read 2 Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10 together. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Thank you. You can take your seats. as you take your seats, whisper a prayer of thanks to God for His Word and ask Him again to speak through His Word to you this morning. Very early on in the history of the church, God brokered an incident that would serve to emphasize the divide between the Old Covenant of the Old Testament and the New Covenant of the New Testament. God worked a miracle, and in that process, God really forced people to choose sides, especially people who had grown up in Judaism under the Old Covenant. And that line between those two groups would become immediately obvious to the, at the moment that, that Peter and John said that the miracle had been done by the power of Jesus of Nazareth. And I know I'm being playing coy with the miracle. I'll explain it in a minute. The fact that the miracle had been done by the power of Jesus caused a huge problem because the Sanhedrin believed that they had dealt once and for all with the problem of Jesus when they had killed him just a few weeks before. The long and short of that miracle is there was a man who sat begging at what was called the beautiful gate there in Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, and that man was more than 40 years old and never had walked, never had been able to walk in his life. He asked Peter and John to give him some money, and instead of giving him some money, Peter and John said, you know, I have no money to give you, but what I do have, I will give to you. And then he said, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He pulled the man to his feet. The man began jumping and and praising, and, and it was really clear that a miracle had been performed. Peter and John used that miracle as an opportunity to share the gospel with the people who had seen the miracle and many of the people that were gathered there believed in Jesus and trusted Him as their Savior. And because of that, the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sanhedrin, the the political and religious leaders among the Jews, heard about what had happened and how people were now believing in Jesus, and that ticked them off with that background. This is the story from God's Word from Acts chapter 4, verses 1-31. to 31. The priests, the, the captains of the temple guard and the Sadducees heard about what was going on there in the courtyard after this man had been healed and was now jumping and praising God. And, and now it's important to note that the Sadducees, in particular of the sect of Judaism, that doesn't believe in miracles and, and doesn't believe that people ever rise from the dead. So when they heard that Peter was telling everyone... That a man who had been born lame had been miraculously healed in the name of the resurrected Jesus of Nazareth. That caused, well, let's just say, problems for them. In fact, the apostles had all been teaching that Jesus had risen from the dead. And the Sadducees in particular were of the opinion that this needed to stop. Now, this group of people that were so ticked off was, was made up of the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, and, and the priests, in other words, the Sanhedrin, and they were the government for the Jewish nation. They were the ones that had the authority in Jerusalem during those days, so they used their political and religious authority to arrest Peter and John. It was late in the day by that time, so they put Peter and John in jail until the next morning. Unfortunately for the Sanhedrin, they didn't get to Peter and John in time to stop them from speaking persuasively about Jesus, and by the time Peter and John were arrested, a whole bunch of people had already believed, based on the miracle, in the message that they had brought. And the consequence of that was that the number of the believers had increased to 5,000 men. We're not sure how many believers there were total in this city of thirty to 80,000, but It's it's pushing 15, 10 to 15,000 altogether. Peter and John spent the night in jail, and the next morning the entire Sanhedrin convened to hear their case and determine their punishment. Annas was the name of the high priest at that time, and he was there with most of his family. They had Peter and John hauled out of the jail to appear before them, and they began to question the two men. By what power or authority did you do this? They asked. In other words, what authority do you have to be healing people and then teaching about it in the temple? The Spirit of God filled Peter's heart and life at that moment, and Peter began to speak on God's behalf with all of God's authority. Rulers and elders of the people, Peter said, if you're asking us today if, uh, of a, uh, about an act of kindness that we have done to a man who was born lame, then I have to say that we are guilty as charged. We were kind to that lame man. If you're also asking how he was healed, then there's a simple answer to that question as well. It was by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the one that you crucified, and the very one that God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you, healed. He was right there in the room. Jesus of Nazareth is the stone that you rejected as being unworthy uh, to be part of God's building, but it is Jesus of Nazareth that God has chosen to be the cornerstone, the capstone of all that he's building here on earth. In fact, Peter continued, salvation can be found in no other, no one other than Jesus, for there is no other name under heaven given among men and women by which we must be saved. Sanhedrin was stunned. They saw how courageous Peter and John were, despite the fact that they were unlearned, unschooled, uncouth, ordinary men. And that's when it occurred to them that that at some point these two men must have been with Jesus. They realized that it must have been Jesus who had discipled them, who had trained them, called them into ministry. There was an even greater problem from the perspective of the Sanhedrin. And that came from the fact that the man who had been healed was standing right there. So there was nothing that they could say to refute what Peter and John had said. They weren't sure at all what to do, so they decided to have Peter and John escorted out into the hall so that they could talk about it. You've probably been in meetings where this has happened. What are we going to do with these guys, they asked, when Peter and John had been taken out. Clearly, everyone in Jerusalem knows by now that they've performed a miracle, so we can't deny that it's a miracle. Still, we have to stop this thing from spreading any further, so since we can't change the fact that this man has been healed, we can at least tell them to stop talking about this Jesus of Nazareth who's supposed to have done all this. And that's when they came up with an idea that they thought might work. If we threaten them with consequences and punishment, they'll probably stop talking about Jesus. (laughs) So they called Peter and John back in, and in their most authoritative voices, they ordered them never to speak or teach in the name of Jesus again. But Peter and John spoke up and said, In your opinion, which is right as far as God is concerned? That we should listen to you or listen to him? If you want to judge something, judge that. Answer that question. Judge which of those two things is the right thing for us to do. Because if you're asking us, we're just going to say that we can't help speaking and witnessing about what we've personally seen and heard. The Sanhedrin weren't sure how to respond, so they resorted to threatening Peter and John with what they would do to them if they kept speaking and teaching in the name of Jesus. They threatened them, but they couldn't think of a way to punish them that day because all the people were praising God for what happened. It seemed incongruous to them to punish Peter and John for performing a miracle. After all, remember, the man who had been born lame was, had, hadn't walked for 40 years, hadn't walked since he was born. They released Peter and John, and the two of them headed right back to where the believers were gathered. They were waiting for Peter and John to come back, knowing that they had been in jail. Peter and John reported all that the Sanhedrin said to them, how they had ordered them not to speak in Jesus' name and threatened them with punishment and consequences if they didn't conform. When the believers heard what the Sanhedrin had said, they immediately began to pray. Lord and King of the universe, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them. And you warned us through the scriptures that people would plot ways to kill Jesus, and that's what they've done. In fact, King Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews conspired together against Jesus and had him killed. At the same time, we know that they were only doing, listen to this, at the same time, we know that they were only doing what your power and will had decided beforehand would happen. And now, Lord, these same people that killed Jesus are threatening us with punishment if we continue to speak in Jesus' name. And so, Lord, there's something that we need from you right now. We are asking you for great boldness to be able to continue speaking your word. And as we speak your word, we're asking you to perform miracles that, that will confirm your word and, and whenever we speak in Jesus' name. When they were finished praying, God himself reached down and shook the building where they were gathered. Every one of the believers was filled with, controlled by the Spirit of God, and as a result, they went out and spoke the Word of God with great boldness. And that is the story from God's Word. Perhaps you can see what I meant when I said that God orchestrated some events to force people to choose a side in the debate that was raging about Jesus. And we can say that Jesus did some forcing of his own during his earthly ministry, especially when he claimed to be God and the Messiah that God promised when God made his covenant with Abraham. We know that there were a lot of people around Jesus during those days who simply would not believe that he was who he claimed to be. Still, Jesus forced people to decide. He forced people to decide whether they would continue to approach God by trying to keep the law or choose instead to approach God through the finished work of Christ the Messiah. In John 5, 39 and 40, Jesus says to the representatives of the Sanhedrin, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Of course, the scriptures that the Sanhedrin were searching were all Old Testament scriptures, since at that time, none of the New Testament had been written. And let's be clear, Jesus is not saying that we shouldn't study the Old Testament. He's not saying that at all. He's saying that there are people who go to the Old Testament looking for life. But that's something that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, can't provide. Because Jesus clearly says that there is a single theme to the Old Testament scriptures, and that single theme is Jesus himself. The Jews of Jesus' day were in the habit of looking for life as they studied the the Old Testament, but God gave the Old Testament to point us to Jesus, and remember Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, there is life in the Old Testament, but that life is Jesus himself. God gave us all of the Old Testament, not so that we could know how to live, but so that we could recognize Jesus when he came to earth. That was the whole plan. But because the spiritual leaders of the Jews misused the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, they didn't recognize Jesus when he came. Or as John put it in John chapter 1, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So let's be clear. Life, salvation, and forgiveness have always, always been by grace through faith. And God stated that and reinforced that truth all the way, in the ba- all the way back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sinned and disobeyed God. You remember that story. And then they tried to cover themselves with leaves. And we don't want to play loose with the Scripture, but those leaves symbolize for us how Im- impermanent and ineffective religion is in bringing us back to God. Genesis 3.7 says, Then the eyes of them both were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You see what it says there? They sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. In other words, they gave it their best shot, but it just wasn't enough. But then look at Genesis 3, 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. I know that many of you probably decided after you left high school that you would never again diagram another English sentence. That might not be your favorite thing to do. Or perhaps you're one of those people who think that a pronoun is a noun that has somehow lost its amateur status. And if that's how you feel, get it. But let's not even talk about the noun in those two sentences. Let's talk about the actors. Let's talk about who's doing the work that's being described. Who are the actors, the one who did the work in verse 7 up there? Well, it's Adam and Eve. It's Adam and Eve who make the coats of leaves, and it's Adam and Eve who put those garments on themselves. And who is the actor, the one who does the work in, in verse 21 up there? Well, this time it's God who does the work that's being done. It's God who makes the coats of skin. It's God who clothes Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had made their best effort by making garments out of leaves and putting them on themselves. God responded to that by making garments of skin that required the sacrifice of an animal. And then God himself put the garments of skin on Adam and Eve. It is God who does the work. God sacrificed the life of and shed the blood of two innocent animals so that he could do the work of making the garments and putting them on Adam and Eve. God responded to their puny efforts with leaves by providing coats of skin for Adam and Eve. And as he did that, he established a principle and a pattern that's been true throughout the entire course of human history. And the pattern is this. God would require something of us. We would make our best effort and ultimately fail miserably. And then God would provide a substitute to suffer the consequences of our failure as God himself met the need that we couldn't meet. That's the pattern. And that pattern is wall to wall throughout the scriptures from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22:21. 21 Everywhere you turn, that pattern is in place. God gives us his law and we consistently break it. So then God offers a solution that requires sacrifice and substitutionary death. And we, expect, we, we accept God's offered solution by faith. And that pattern put in place in the Garden of Eden is still in place today. And God requires that we choose between doing things our way and doing things his way And all along the way, he teaches us that our best efforts will always fail. That's the thing that we learn primarily from the law. Our best efforts will always fail. And the only hope that we have is to provide, to accept his substitutionary death by faith. We've often said it, I owed a debt that I could not pay. Jesus paid a debt that he did not owe. So the truth is, only those who are perfectly sinless can become part of God's kingdom. And that's what leads us to the catch-22. We can be part of God's kingdom if we are perfectly sinless. But since we are not and cannot be perfectly sinless, we cannot be part of God's kingdom. And that was the very issue that stymied the Jewish leaders. They thought that God's law would give them life. They thought that God's law would make them holy. But all that God's law actually can do is prove to us that we've failed, and then point us to trust Jesus so that we can be saved and live a holy life. There are some people who continue to ride that endless carousel for the rest of their lives, trying but never succeeding, wanting but never deserving, endeavoring to be holy but never achieving holiness. And then for some, there comes that moment when they're forced to choose whether they will continue to try or give in and simply believe that Jesus has already done for them what they cannot do for themselves. And At that moment, when they simply believe, God reaches down and saves them and begins to teach them how to live a holy life. And he doesn't do all that for us because we deserve it. He does all of that because of his grace and purpose. Look what it says in the first part of verse 9. He has saved us and called us to a holy life not because of anything we have done but because of his own purpose and grace. So this is all God's doing uh, but I have to ask who's done this for us? Is it the God of the Old Testament or the God of the New Testament that's done all this? After all, that was the issue that Jesus raised and I, I don't mean to confuse you but I have to tell you I've been hearing from a lot of people lately including some people who might be considered Competent Bible teachers that they have a hard time reconciling the God of the New Testament with the God of the Old Testament. In other words, it, it seems to them like two pieces of a puzzle that that don't actually fit together. They're trying to sort this out, but they can't make those two things meet. They see the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Old Covenant as an angry and vindictive God who sent the flood and destroyed the world, who demolished and obliterated Sodom and Gomorrah, who decimated the people who used to live in the promised land so that he could give it to his people instead and who ordered the execution of the 450 prophets of Baal. There are people who see all that anger and violence coming out of a God who clearly hates sin and punishes sinful people, but then on the other hand, There's Jesus, there's the God of the New Testament, as they put it, who seems to be a God of love and grace and mercy, who's more inclined to forgive than he is to punish. And when I hear some teachers teach God's Word, it's as though they're saying, will the real God please stand up? We have to sort this out. Which one is the real God? And others teach as though God originally planned that he would demand of us that we should be righteous and do the right thing. But then he discovered that we really weren't up to that. We really couldn't pull that off. And so we came up with a new plan where he does everything for us while we just sit back and believe. And I'm not making that up. But I'd I'd suggest to you that the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. The God of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament. They are one and the same. And while we call it the new covenant, that does not mean that it is a new plan that God came up with when he realized that his old plan in the old covenant wasn't really working. Our God is an angry and vindictive God who hates sin and punishes sinful people. And we see that over and over again as he reveals himself to us in the pages of the Old Testament. He gave Adam and Eve one command and they... they, They broke it. He offered them relationship with himself, and they squandered it. He put them in charge of creation, and they gave it away to the enemy of our souls. And after doing all that in the Garden of Eden, God intensified the pressure. He put on people by adding law after law after law that led to curse and punishment after curse and punishment after curse and punishment. He continued to push and pressure until he finally broke us and forced us to our knees where we had to admit, I can't do this. I can't be what you want me to be. But this is the same God who made a promise to Adam and Eve there in the garden that he would be the one who would deal once and for all with the problem our our sin caused. Right there in the garden where Adam and Eve represented us as they separated us from a holy God That same holy God promised to send a promised Redeemer who would buy us back from the slave market, and none of us could have guessed. Oh, listen to this. None of us could have guessed that when the promised one came to earth, when the Redeemer arrived arrived to pay our sin debt, it was God himself who became a human being. So that he could be punished in in our place and die in our place so that we could be forgiven. And if you've never heard this before, I'm saying it now, that was always the plan. Always the plan. God always intended to charge us with sin and then pay our sin debt himself so that we could have life and forgiveness in his name. Revelation 13, 8 paints a picture that's both bleak and glorious when it says, all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. According to that passage, in God's mind, when was Jesus crucified? In God's mind, when was Jesus crucified? Was he crucified as part of a new plan that God had made in response to our failure? No, 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 in the mind of God. Jesus was crucified before he created the world. Remember, God is not bound by time, and that means that God's plan was always that Jesus would die for us. That was always his plan. When we say old covenant and new covenant, When we say Old Testament and New Testament, we do not mean that there was an old plan and now there's a new plan. We don't mean that at all. There has only, always been only one plan. A plan that has God hating sin, accusing us of sin, judging us worthy of punishment because of our sin, dooming us, and then announcing the good news that Jesus has already been punished in our place and has already died in our place. And as we've often said from this pulpit, we are saved by grace through faith plus... That was rousing. As we often have said from this pulpit, we're saved by grace through faith plus nothing. In other words, God applies His marvelous grace. He announces His grace to us. And we simply believe that, God, that what God has said is true. God's grace works together with our faith, and that's the way it has always worked. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant had the law. The New Testament, the New Covenant has the Spirit. But salvation under the new is the same as salvation under the old, by grace, through faith, plus nothing. And if you don't believe me, then look at what Paul says in the rest of verse 9 and verse 10. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. In closing, I want to take you on a flight of fancy by means of an illustration that I used a few years back, but I'll use it again because it speaks to me even if it didn't speak to you back then, but... Uh, and And over the last few weeks, I've needed the reminder that this story brings more than ever. It's a story that reflects biblical truth and principles. But you can't find this story in the pages of God's Word. So I have to say, with that background, this is not the story from God's Word. There was a man who lived a good long life. He finally found himself standing before St. Peter at the gates of heaven. And why St. Peter? Well, I don't know. He just seems to come in, into these kind of stories for some reason. In any event, the man had expected that St. Peter would welcome him. But, but as, he, as he approached the gate, St. Peter confronted him and challenged him instead. St. Peter stopped him at the gate without opening the gate for him and said, Okay, we work on a merit system here, and I need to tell you that it takes 5,000 points to get into heaven system works pretty simply. You tell me what you did when you were on earth. I'll tell you how many points you get for that particular thing. And when you reach 5,000 points, I'll open the gate for you. Got it? Okay, there's the challenge. So the man looked at St. Peter and he said, I, I lived with my wife for almost 50 years and was never unfaithful to her or the promises I made to her at our wedding all those years before. That is awesome, St. Peter said you get two points for that. <laughs> two points, the man said. And then it added, uh, how many points do I need again? 5,000, St. Peter said. That means you only have 4,998 to go. And then the man said, well, this should be worth something. I served God for my entire adult life, and I got to tell you, I was able to buy many of the things that, that I needed, and, but I can assure you that uh, I wasn't really fairly compensated for the thousands of hours that I put in. St. Peter said, you know, <clears throat> when, when I first set eyes on you coming up to this gate, I told myself that you were going to do really well here this afternoon, and, and well, here you are. I'm going to give you eight points for that, and that leaves you with 4,990 points to go. Aren't you encouraged by that? Well, not really, the man said, and And then added, "Ah, I raised three children through their teen years without killing them. (laughs) Awesome and impressive, said Peter. That's going to get you another five points. So that leaves just 4,985 points to go. And I can tell you, you're doing really well compared to some. So the man said, well, all three of those children went to the other side of the world and are serving God with their families. So that means that our whole family is serving God full time. Wow, St. Peter said, that's good for another 10 points. So that just leaves 4,975 points to go. So what else do you got? Hey, the man said, you know, I wasn't expecting to have to do this, and so I'm really not prepared. And and frankly, I've just given you my best shot. I've just told you the four best things I've ever done, and they only amounted to 25 points. So I know I'll never get to 5,000. Oh, yeah, I I see where you're coming from, St. Peter. And then added, I I remember when the same thing happened to me. I don't remember how many points I had, but I do remember giving up on even trying to get to 5,000. And that's when the man noticed that the Apostle Paul was standing right there, too. Paul spoke up and said, I'm right there with you, buddy, and I'm feeling your pain because it happened to me, too. That's when the man decided to take a completely different tack. You know, the man said, truth be told, a long time ago. A long time ago, I gave up on the idea that I could earn my way into heaven by working hard enough or trying to pay off the debt that I owe to God. Years ago, I realized that I was bankrupt before a holy God, and I understood that I owed a debt that I couldn't pay. But I also heard the good news that Jesus had paid a debt that he didn't owe. In fact, he paid my debt. So if you're asking why you should let me into heaven, I have to say that by the measure you've used today, you shouldn't let me into heaven because I don't deserve it. And that's why I have to say that I'm not coming here on my own merits because I know that my own merits mean nothing. Left to myself, I know that I'm supposed to die for my sin, but long ago I believed that Jesus died for me. And I can tell you today that I do not stand here in my own merits. Instead, I'll just say it. I stand here in the merits of Jesus. (laughs) Why didn't you say so in the first place? Peter said. With a smile on his face, he opened the gates and the man went in. Enter the joy of your Lord. And just so we're clear again, that's not the story from God's Word. But it is an illustration of an important truth that we find in God's Word. And listen to me. No one is ever going to have that conversation with St. Peter. Because according to God's Word, we won't stand before St. Peter. We will stand before Almighty God Himself at the great white throne judgment. And believe me, you don't want to have that conversation with Him at the great white throne. I'd recommend that you have that conversation with Him today. I'd... Take a moment to talk to him and say, God, I I owe a debt that I can't pay. So I want to thank you that Jesus paid my debt. And because Jesus paid my debt, I want to thank you that on the day that I stand before you, I will not have to stand there depending on my own merits, but instead I will stand there, stand before you in the merits of Jesus who loved me and bought me from my sin with his own precious blood. Don't wait another minute To have that conversation with God. Talk to him heart to heart right there where you're sitting. Take a moment to do that. And in closing, let me read the passage to you one more time. He has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Will you stand with me in the presence? Our Father and our God, we bless your name today for who you are and for what you've done for us. We come to you as bankrupt, broken, undeserving sinners. But we come before your throne boldly, before the throne of grace boldly, because we know that we stand there in the very person of Jesus Christ, that he remains our advocate. Thank you, Father, that you have provided salvation and life for us. And God, I pray for every single person here that they will have that conversation with you that they will acknowledge their own brokenness, their own bankrupt heart, and that they would accept, believe, in the finished work of Jesus Christ on their behalf. God, I'm supposed to die for my sin, but Jesus has died for me. And I come to you today, we come to you today, in the merits of Jesus, by your grace. Thank you for your goodness. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen and amen. There's a bunch of people out there that need to hear what you've just heard, not this message. Don't don't be going out there playing this message for them, okay? Sit down in conversation with them. As as you pass them, as you stand in line with them at the grocery store, ask them, have you heard the good news? And everybody wants to hear good news, right? (laughs) Sneak up on them. Go ahead. Jesus actually said this. Listen to me, he said. I'm sending you a sheep into the midst of wolves. So be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. We've gathered together. We've huddled up. We've decided on a play. We're going to go out there and run it. So all that's left is for me to say, ready? Ready. Go get him Potter's house.